0: as we look at that second passage together. Um, Let me pray as we begin. Father God, we ask that you would be with us now and we pray that you would open our hearts to receive your word and respond in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What? does it look like to lead a happy life? And not just happy in the sense of a life that has a good amount of pleasure in it, but happy in the sense of a life which is truly, richly good. A life that we might say is a success. A life that turns out well. What does this look like? Well, we're not, of course, the first people to ever ask this question. It's been a fairly constant worry for human beings throughout the last 3,000 years. Um, Ancient Greek philosophers, if you will excuse a little nerdiness, took it for granted that all human beings desired happiness. And again, by this they didn't just mean happiness as a feeling, they meant that all people were driven by a desire for their life to go well, for their life to turn out well. The ancient Greek philosophers agreed on one other point also, actually, that no one could agree on what that actually looked like. No one could agree what a happy life actually was. What do you think it would look like for your life to be turning out the way you want it to? Uh, You may not have actually thought about this very out in the open before but most of us I think have some sort of vague answer to this question percolating away beneath the surface of our lives you see we care about some things more than others don't we and when some things don't quite work out it stresses us out more than we were expecting and we find ourselves if we're honest a little envious of some other people whose lives seem to be going in a direction we would like ours to be going in. I think it's because without necessarily being able to name it, we have a vision underneath it all of how we would like our lives to go. We have beliefs about what it would look like for us to be living a happy life, a fulfilling life, the life we'd like to live. Now, all of this may seem rather obvious, Of course we all want our lives to go well and of course we all have some idea, if we think about it, of what this would look like. What is not at all obvious though is how this question, the question of the kind of life we desire, how that relates to what we might call moral questions, questions about how we should and shouldn't live. It's not obvious because it often seems like there's actually a clash between how we would quite like to live and how we actually know we ought to live. It's a clash we feel every time we're faced with a decision between our desire and our conscience. A husband faces it when he falls in love with someone who is not his wife. An employee faces it when she discovers a way that she could steal from her employer and no one would notice. We bump up against choices, don't we, where it seems like our desires for life come into conflict with what we think is the right thing to do. Now, of course, one way of responding is just to say, well, stuff your desires, do the right thing. And there's a lot going for this response, isn't there? For we all know, and those of us who are Christians know all too well, that our desires can be, frankly, bad evil, and it does us no good at all to give in to them. The problem with this response, though, is that it becomes incredibly difficult when we're not just talking out about our desire for one thing, one particular moment, like sex or money or a house or something, but the kind of desire we began with, the desire for our life to go well it's not easy to just forget about that desire and do the right thing. The fact is, the question of our own happiness, the question of the life we would like to have, that has a big impact on us in all sorts of ways. We can't get away from this desire for our life to go well, no matter how much we might care about what's the right thing to do. Jesus knew this, and I think that's why he begins the Sermon on the Mount in the way that he does. He opens this most famous teach of moral piece, this most famous piece of moral teaching, not with a bunch of commandments. Do this, do that. There are commandments in the ser- in the Sermon on the Mount, but they come later. But instead of that, Jesus begins with a statement of what the desirable life looks like. Have a look with me, if you haven't got it open, have a look with me at Matthew chapter 5 from verse 3. If somebody could tell me a page number, that would be helpful. 958, it would be helpful to have it open. You see, blessed, says Jesus, and then he lists a bunch of people, blessed. Nowadays, if we use the word blessed at all, It has a kind of saintly ring to it, doesn't it? As if it's the kind of word that only people with English accents and pipe organs can really pull off. This is a bit of a bummer, I think, as it disconnects these words from our concerns. Concerns I think Jesus intended to connect with, concerns that we all have. And for this reason, there are actually some English translations that go with happy instead of blessed. That has various problems as well but it does capture something. You see, what Jesus is doing here is telling us what the kind of life that is truly desirable is. This is what he means when he says, blessed are, he means to say, these are the kinds of people who are living the good life. These are the ones we should wish our lives were like. This is what a life to be desired looks like. But of course that's where it all gets a bit crazy, isn't it? Because the people Jesus lists are not the kind of people we naturally tend to envy. What Jesus describes is not the picture of the life we'd like to live, the picture that lies underneath a lot of the things we feel and do day to day. Blessed, says Jesus, are the poor in spirit. By which I I take it he means what we think he must mean. Those who are not confident in themselves. Those who feel in themselves their inadequacy for living rightly in this world. Blessed, he says, are those who mourn. It's not rocket science what he's talking about. Blessed, he says, are the meek. The meek, is he serious? Blessed, Jesus goes on, are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That is, those whose daily life is full of a sense of emptiness because the world and they themselves are not the way they should be. Blessed are the merciful, those who are willing, that is, to forego their rights out of compassion. Blessed are the pure in heart and the peacemakers and those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Now, many of us will be so used to hearing these words that they just don't go in. We can't feel how confronting they actually are. But imagine for a moment you had to compile a list of Beatitudes, that's what these are traditionally called, Beatitudes, based on your favourite newspaper. There'd no doubt be some differences between them. Uh, The Herald might give you something like, blessed are the learned, the tolerant, the progressive, the authentic, the passionate and those who like good food and wine. Blessed are they. The telly's list would, I'm sure, be a bit different. Blessed are the self-made, those who don't put up with nonsense, the hardworking and rugby league supporters. And with apologies to Margaret Rogers, the Australian might just say, blessed are those who really, really hate the Greens. But if we're serious for a second, if we're serious, do you see how different a list taken from the values of our culture would look from Jesus' list? No one really thinks that the ones whose lives are enviable are the meek, the pure of heart, and those who are persecuted because they love righteousness. And that's because this kind of life is costly. When all is said and done, this is not actually the kind of life that winds up in your favour. It's not the kind of life that will come around to your advantage. People sometimes talk about similar ideas, that's the logic of karma, isn't it? A little mercy here will come back to you later on. Stand up for what you believe and people will eventually come round to your view. Now that kind of advice may or may not be wise in in a situation, but it's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about characteristics that define a life, the basic contours of a way of being in the world. These are not descriptions of one-off moments. This is a picture of a kind of person and this kind of life doesn't actually tend to work out well for this kind of person. This kind of life will cost you. People walk all over this kind of person. This way of life leads to death. Now, we need to make sure we also notice Jesus' last claim. Did you see it in verse 11? That blessed are those who are connected to him thick and thin. Blessed are you, he says in verse 11, when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me blessed are those who cop flack because they are identified with Jesus this last statement is important because it stands out from the eight that come before which form a kind of unit a nice little whole and in this last Jesus changes from saying blessed are the blessed are those to speaking to his disciples directly and saying blessed are you And what this does is to kind of focus all the other things he's been saying on this question of being his followers. As if when they are under fire because they're with him, at that point they represent most clearly all the things he has just said. At that point of suffering because of him, they most clearly reveal the kind of life that we should all wish we had. Seriously? I mean, are we actually supposed to believe this? Jesus knew, of course, that what he was saying was shocking, that it sounded ridiculous and unbelievable. He said these things, I think, to provoke us and to make us focus our attention on the reason he gives for this claim why it is according to him that these people are to be called blessed. And the reason is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, says Jesus, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The same reason is given in verse 10 at the other end of the list. And in between we get six different reasons, all of which are promises about the future. Those who mourn are blessed because they will be comforted. The meek because they will inherit the earth. Those who hunger will be filled. The merciful will be shown mercy. The pure in heart are assured that they will see God. The peacemakers that they will be called sons of God. These are extraordinary promises. And they paint a picture of a glorious and inspiring future hope which is already somehow available in the present This is the kingdom of heaven, which was the theme of all of Jesus' teaching. God's new world breaking into this one with power and unspeakable beauty and turning all our expectations about the world, even our expectations and our assumptions about happiness, turning them all upside down. You see, the criterion for working out whether or not a life is going well, according to Jesus. The measure by which we know whether a life is to be desired or not is simply this, whether it has a share in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom, you see, is a factor of such extraordinary value. He'll he'll later call it a pearl of, of great price that it puts everything else we might hope for from life in the shade the glory of the kingdom outshines any trouble we may have here and now and so it is the one thing that finally determines whether a life can really be called blessed whether a life is really a desirable life well i wonder what you make of this teaching at the beginning of the sermon on the mount I wonder what this teaching does to you. If you're anything like me, it will make you feel a little bit uncomfortable from two angles. First, I feel uncomfortable because although I can maybe sometimes see bits of the characteristics Jesus describes in my life, this is not a picture of me. I might sometimes feel humbled by something but I can't really claim to be the poor in spirit. Sometimes I have a go at peacemaking and mercy but other times the fact is I can cause conflict and be callous. I don't always feel the hunger in my belly for righteousness that Jesus describes here. What do I do with that? From a second angle, Jesus' teaching makes me uncomfortable because I realise I'm not as single-minded in my desires as this. I mostly have, I think, more than one idea of how I want my life to go, working away beneath the surface of my life. Yes, I want to be part of the kingdom. I'm a Christian. It matters to me. But to be honest, I would also quite like to be successful in my career and for my family to be secure and to be able to spend my time in enjoyable ways. All these things, of course, are good gifts from God. They're not to be rejected in themselves, but I realise they can very quickly become an alternative vision for my life, an alternative picture of what it would look like for my life to go well. Jesus' teaching here is unsettling because it makes me ask the question of what what am I really hoping for from life and to confront the fact that I may be trying to have a bed each way. I don't think the main point of Jesus' words here though is to make us feel bad. Some of us I think will need to repent of our unbelief but I think the main point of these words is actually a bit different. It's to encourage us to lift our eyes and to see a bigger vision for our lives, to see the kingdom which throws everything into a different light and to make us ready to become, in whatever ways we may be called to, the kind of people he describes here. What Jesus wants to do here is to make us see that to be one of his people to be ready to suffer for him, to give up things for him and to share in his loves, that's not foolish. It's not something you will regret. In fact, it's the only way to live a life which is truly desirable. So I think the challenge to us of this passage today is simply this. Do we believe in the kingdom of heaven? Do we believe in it enough to let it shape our hopes for our life? Do you believe in the kingdom of heaven enough to let it change your picture of how you would like your life to turn out? But we must remember as well that we don't just have to take Jesus' word for it. For, of course, what we have here is really actually a picture of the life that Jesus lived. This is a picture of his life, of humility, meekness, hunger for God's justice, mercy, peacemaking and persecution for righteousness' sake. Jesus lived this life. This is his portrait. And as we might have predicted, it killed him. But he was raised from the dead. And that changes everything. And if we believe that, then we will know that he was telling the truth here and that this really is the way the world is because of God's kingdom. This really is the kind of life we would be sensible to desire. So let me conclude by calling you this morning to make a decision to believe Jesus on the question of your own happiness. We cannot finally have a bet each way. So let us lift our eyes and see the kingdom and see how all our other pictures of how we'd like our life to go, they all just pale in comparison to this, to the comfort, the dignity, the fulfilment and the intimacy with God we are promised there. The English author who some of you will know, C.S. Lewis, he once wrote that, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, I think he was talking about this passage, they will see God. It would seem that our Lord, he wrote, finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition When infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by a holiday at the sea. We are not wrong, friends, to want our lives to turn out well. We just don't know what we're really hoping for. Let me urge you to listen to Jesus when he says that what finally makes the difference is the kingdom of heaven and when we have heard that we should prepare ourselves to become the kind of people he describes here because if we set our sights on the kingdom then these are the kinds of characteristics we should expect to start to be a part of our lives. And I think the way to start down that road is to resolve to hold on to Jesus above everything else and to be ready to stand up as one of his people so if you would like to make a decision to let jesus teaching shape your idea of what it would look like for your life to go well then i invite you to pray with me now i'm going to pray using some of the words from psalm 73 that was read before because i think it shows us exactly the kind of change of perspective that we need let's pray Lord, our eyes are so often flooded with the things of this life that we cannot see your kingdom. We imagine that our best hopes for life are to be secure, comfortable, productive and amused. All good things, but not what you have made us for. Please forgive us. Thank you, Lord, that you are gracious to us, that you are always with us, even when we are senseless. And thank you for these words of counsel that you have given us today. We ask now that you will fill our hearts with these promises so that we are ready to become the kind of people you describe here and so that we are ready to stand up for you above everything else. We pray that we will be able to say with the psalmist, Who have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.